questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Today, not only have the origins of civilization changed beyond all recognition, developments in geology, genetics, astronomy, archaeology, and linguistics strain to break in the underlying premises and assumptions of scientific materialism. The picture that emerges in doing so is stunning in its implications. This is not history. This is not archaeology. This is not folklore. This is a new skill. But it is also an old one. It is not the skill of organizing data points into a sequential historical narrative. It is the skill of context, of recontextualizing the Western magical tradition as it has arrived in our hands here in the 21st century, rather than seeking to replace it wholesale with each new development, as if it were last year's smartphone. Greetings. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas at Veritas Radio. Tonight's special guest is Gordon White, who runs one of the leading chaos magic blogs and podcasts, Rune Soup. He has worked nationally and internationally for some of the world's largest digital and social media companies, including BBC Worldwide, Discovery Channel, and Yelp. Gordon has presented at media events across Europe on social and data strategy, as well as the changing behaviors and priorities of Generation Y. During this time, he has partied with princes, dined in castles, dived on sunken cities, and even had a billionaire night buy him bottles of champagne. His new book is now out and is titled Starships, A Prehistory of the Spirits. His website is linked at ours, and Gordon White joins us directly from Eastern Australia. Hello, Gordon, and welcome to Veritas. How are you? I'm well. Thank you very much for the invitation. My pleasure. And by the way, that last part of uh, your bio, partying with a prince, with princes, dined in castles, and a billionaire knight bought you bottles of champagne. Did rubbing elbows with the elite help you uncover things in your research you would otherwise wouldn't have been able to? Yeah, without question. Um, it verified some of the things I'd, uh, in terms of at least how they see the world, in uh, in terms of at least what I'd been sort of looking at for a few years beforehand. Interesting. Now, the book, Starships, what is the premise of your book and what was the motivation behind it? The premise of the book is uh, very often in the occult world, uh, people talk about the origins of different components of what we might call Northwest European magic to do with the actual ritual structure of it, such as the use of circles and, and particular forms of invocation and also the beings on the other line, on the other end of the phone, so to speak. And Whilst this is entirely accurate to say that the form of it uh, emerges from Alexandria in in the classical age in a kind of Greco-Egyptian blend, that's still only that's coming in five minutes before the movie ends. Because how did those constituent pieces get to that particular um, semiotic soup? And so it was about tracing them further back. And you go, well, okay, um, two thirds of them, roughly speaking, came through dynastic dynastic Egypt. And you think, well, okay, fine. Uh, How did they get there? And you sort of with the changes and developments in different scientific fields, such as genetics and linguistics and geology and archaeology, a pattern for what happened prior to recorded history is becoming clearer and clearer. And what's hugely compelling about that is that we start to see 
pieces that would be recognizable in the occult world at a time depth of, you know, 13,000 to potentially 70,000 years ago. And it's about bringing the story is about bringing those into alignment uh, to sort of. Yeah, to bring them into alignment, there's a, there's a sort of broad thesis behind it, which is in magic or spirituality, older isn't necessarily better, but oldest might be. Why do you think the origins of civilization have changed beyond all recognition these days? Um, from a archaeological perspective, the biggest change in the last 20 years has probably been the discovery of Gobekli Tepe in southeast Turkey. Mm -hmm. Uh, that one is is something of a it's it's mild to call it a game changer because it's a it's essentially a star temple built on a hill at a time before humans even lived in permanent structures. So the old uh, kind of imperial march of progress view of history is turned on its head. The um, the discoverer of it, Dr. Klaus Schmidt, he's since died, says that the cathedral predates the city, and and what he means by that is that. We were interested in the same ideas of what life means and, uh, you know, what the universe is essentially long before uh, we sort of settled into, into permanent settlements. And that turns on its head the modernist idea because typically you would say that in the 50s you might say something like, we really only decided to to make up stories about the universe when we had enough time as as farmers when the sun went down and sitting around the fire we'd listen to these priest types and and that's the origin of kind of religious or spiritual thought well it's provably not the case and it's provably not the case kind of towards the end of that paleolithic hunter gatherer period cuz gobekli tepe sort of straddles the Paleolithic to Neolithic and hunter-gatherer to settled because it was in use for so long. And if it's there at the, the very end of it, uh, where the technology and life ways are identical to 100,000 years beforehand, it's entirely reasonable to assert that similar things were happening 100,000 years ago, given that the structure of the human brain and, and, and the way people lived and whatever hadn't really changed in that time. Is Gobleki Tepe the holy grail? at least until now, when it comes to the oldest man-made structure discovered? Uh, it's definitely not the oldest, but it is... I described it as um, Graham Hancock, author of the month, last month. And I described yep. it as a as a Rosetta Stone. That's how um, I found you, by the way. He referred me to you. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, nice. Um, I describe it as a Rosetta Stone. So that's essentially what we found. And principally because it does straddle life ways that we have at least some limited capacity to understand which is the settled agricultural one and the hunter-gatherer one during the ice age which we just we don't have um we don't have this sort of experiential match to be able to say anything with it and i think that's one of the main reasons we got it wrong so we kind of have bits that we would understand uh that match bits that we previously didn't and it, and as such it's kind of like having multiple languages which is how the rosetta stone worked so that's why Gobekli Tepe is, is so important. What I talk about in the book is that it may not have been that important at the time. It is one of the kind of bizarre miracles of archaeology that it survived as long as it did in such a, um, 
comparatively pristine state. But we don't know because it's it's so old. We don't know how many hills there could have been hills right across Eurasia that had structures like it. We just we don't know anymore because many civilizations have come and gone between now and then. So it's uh, it's like the Rosetta Stone rather than the Holy Grail. It's it may not just because we found it, we may be giving it more importance as a location that it doesn't have. Like the Rosetta Stone was um, is a bureaucratic document. It's not actually important to the history of Egypt, but it's prof- it was profoundly important in our understanding of Egyptology. And, and Gobekli Tepe has a similar role to play. With the advent of ground-penetrating radar, do you think that we'll find in the next few years more of the equivalent of Gobekli Tepe around the world? Um. Potentially. I mean, one would always hope that's the the fun thing about archaeology. This the sort of famous phrase is, um, you know, it can be overturned by the archaeologist's spade. Like you can find something and it, it changes the whole story as long as you're prepared to. And this is one of the sort of academic challenges, as long as you're actually prepared to update the theory at that point. And it's not very good at that because you end up with kind of generations of academics that have a vested interest mm-hmm. in a particular view of it. And and that's just structurally one of the problems. The solve for it, because I don't see how I don't see how that ever changes. The solve for it is the democratization of, of data and analysis and, and interest uh, outside of a particular cultural and economic structure, which is the academy. And I think we're seeing that. So we may hope so. Uh, it depends where we look. The other place we need to the other thing we potentially need to update with reference to Eurasia and Southern Asia, is we now have evidence in uh, from sites in Sumer, from sites in India, from sites in Egypt, and so on, that buildings were repurposed and removed acro- and, and sort of realigned across millennia. So it made many of these structures that are you know ten thousand years old per se may be staring us right in the face and they've essentially been rebuilt many times uh, over that period. So it, it's not the case that we sort of uh, abandon a building uh, and and build another one. And so the ancient one is there for us to find in many respects. And the famous and I guess most exciting one of that, if we're talking about older structures on earth, is of course um, Gunung Padang in uh, India, in, um, in India, in Indonesia, where um, – this building was – well, this structure, this hilltop was used um, into – well, into historical times, but the earliest evidence of it being shaped and, and built is at about 21,000 BC. So that's a very good example of something that's been in use, in use more or less for 20,000 years. I can see how academia has a hard time accepting a lot of this a new reality. I, I can think of, of, of one professor who seems to, to be open-minded enough to, to at least entertain new ideas, Dr. Robert Schock, whom I know you know, I believe. Yeah, of course. Uh, he's. This is one of the wonderful things about being almost an outsider in, in that particular field, because obviously he's a geologist rather mm-hmm. than archaeologist. And uh, it takes a certain personality type, a brave one, and also probably tenure. This is what I mean about the Structurally, academia has uh, a, a lot of resistance to making those big changes because it's a um, it's its own Game of Thrones, and that's getting worse as more people move into it and, and the money gets pulled out of it. Why is the Sepik, the longest river on the island of uh, New Guinea, so prevalent in your book? 
Oh, uh, because my family used to live on it. My aunt was oh. born. Um, my aunt was born at the um, the sort of mouth of it. My grandfather was part of colonial administration in Nauru and New Guinea, so um, he ran the Sepik district uh, for a while there, and that's uh, where. That's yes. Yeah, so my my aunt is essentially New Guinean. Uh, when my my father is a doctor, well, he's retired now, but he went into medicine in Australia with the intention of going back to New Guinea once he'd become a doctor and uh, and work there. But he went to college and fell in love and uh, never went back. Well, he's been back, but he never moved back. Interesting. Now, how can we trust our history when even in today's day and age, archaeologists, museum superintendents have been found to fake discoveries by reburying them or even erasing paintings from caves? Aside from ego, why this impulse Gordon, to change our history? Uh, again, I have to come back to the the way academia incentivizes itself means that it's for, shall we say, like, you know, the morally compromised, uh, it's it's really easy to do. And you end up you end up having, and I'm mean, this is one of those kind of like not all academics things, but nevertheless, it it, it structurally makes this kind of uh dodginess um, more likely to happen and one of the things that triggers that is if you find something that is paradigm shifting you will publish yourself out of a job or out of a career because you can't if you do something that kind of the next rungs up or heads of department disagree with and by disagree with i mean if you publish something that invalidates what they've been saying or working on for 40 years you're going nowhere. Don't rock the uh, boat. Keep the status quo, basically. And that's and I don't see why academia would be any different to a government. Like we we shouldn't single them out to a government career or even a career inside a large corporation. What we need to do is kind of realize that that's the case. Like that's that is just a component of how um, the Western world creates information that we need to manage. And funny enough, there's a. There's a Reagan quote, which is trust but verify. And, uh, yeah, but the Russians. Yeah. And, uh, that is, that's, that's good advice. But do you think, it, what is the Max Planck quote that we're not going to change things? It's going to happen funeral after funeral. Do we have to expect these professors, these Sahi Hawass's pharaohs of the world now to, to be gone before things really change? Yes, uh, we do. And if we don't want to wait that long, this comes back to what I was saying about the democratization of data interpretation. Now, uh, you know, excavation is a specialist and boring skill. It's not actually that difficult, but it is a specialist and boring skill that constitutes data. But there is nothing that says that the person who um, is very good at digging up a 3000 year old garbage pile is the right person for analysis of what happens afterward, particularly when you're dealing with places like Egypt that are, you know, riddled with uh, magical and, and sort of uh, consciousness centric worldviews. It, it's not necessarily a match. Nassim Taleb has this metaphor, which I appropriated into this discussion, but he's referring more to economics and business, which is the carpenter who builds the roulette wheel 
isn't necessarily the person you go to for gambling advice. And that's where we are now. And uh, like we're talking about the, the shortcomings in, in mainstream academia, which is valid. But the shortcomings in the kind of alternative world are, um, you know, just as excre- extreme and sometimes more so in its selective use of data and use of old paradigms, uh, except that in the alternative world, they tend to be Zechariah Sitchin and, and, and so on. So this is a challenge that is this is just how we we grow knowledge, right? We we use data and we examine it rigorously and we sort of democratize the analysis. And that's kind of what we can do whilst we wait for the funerals. By the way, speaking of, of Sitchin, your take on the work of the late Zachariah Sitchin. Oh, um, well, I'm glad he did it. Uh, he, he kind of falls into a classical academic trap, which is doubling down on his original thesis, even as the data in subsequent decades kind of spreads further away. So he doubled down on the nuclear powered rocket ship kind of approach, even as it, that kind of hypothesis fell away. But, um, yeah, that, that's it. like he's, you, everyone who does this work needs to make peace with the fact that they're going to be 95% wrong in the eyes of history. That's just the game. Um, and his kind of physical alien um, coming to Earth to make humans, to mine gold, to fix an atmosphere, nuclear-powered rocket ship thing is probably not correct. But he should be uh, remembered as someone who looked at Sumer and uh, Egypt and the kind of emergence of civilization in that specific pocket of the world and said, something really stinks here. Here's what I think happened. And that's the bit we should remember him for. And he actually, he went, uh, he went quite away with that. Like he could read cuneiform and hieroglyphs and he did many tours there and so on. So he wasn't a dilettante about it. It's just that his theses have not necessarily survived. Uh, but that's fine. That's kind of how these things go. Speaking of these dubious academics, because your book is so comprehensive, let me just extract a couple of things. Here's one. Take Malta as an example. Malta has some of the Mediterranean's most astounding examples of early human culture, and as a result, has more than a century of highly dubious academic behavior, misrepresenting chemical dating, swapping out older remains for younger ones, and so on. Unquote. Who is behind all of this and why? I think it's different people uh, at at different times, but you end up, particularly when you have uh, when you have non core museums and kind of non core universities in terms of the sort of great hierarchy of who's right and who's wrong, and at the top you have you know um, Oxford and Chicago and so on, right? Um, there is a don't rock the boat component of it the people sort of self-police uh, what they find and the trouble with sites like malta is that it's kind of inarguable that we have a completely missing chunk of the history of the mediterranean basically post uh, gobekli tepe so it's sort of immediately after the ice age you have the genetic evidence of multiple different cultures bringing things like uh, agriculture at different speeds uh, around the Mediterranean. And, they're, you know, they're using boats. They're doing all this kind of stuff. So we, it's not like we're missing a culture. We're missing, you know, a, a very large chunk of, of history 
because we're also historically not very good at um, archaeologizing the ocean, if you will. So um, anywhere along that coast, the same, you can say this. Thank you for listening. To unlock the full two-hour interview, including video formats, downloads, transcripts, exclusive articles, and more, subscribe to Veritas Plus now. Gain access to our entire archive dating back to 2008. Just click subscribe at veritasradio.com. Because you don't want to believe, you want to know. Subscribe now. To listen to the rest and all of our exclusive material, proceed to the Veritas Plus member section or join the Veritas Plus family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for focused life force energy. Get a 15-day free trial today with no credit card required. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button on our website at veritasradio.com. Now, proceed to the Veritas Plus member section or subscribe to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it. Because you don't want to believe, you want to know. What are you waiting for? Subscribe now at veritasradio.com.